We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Up to 2 Samuel chapter 15. As today we have this heartbreaking chapter in which Absalom rebels and David runs. And we're going to see the rebellion of Absalom in verses 1 through 12, and then the way David flees in verses 13 through 37. Now when we look at Absalom's rebellion, we're going to see a couple of things happen. Number one, he steals the hearts of the people, and then number two, he steals the crown of his father. So look what we read here in verse 1. It says, After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand before the way, beside the way to the gate. And so it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. More than likely, you know, you guys know, uh, I know for those of you who have children, and, and even if you don't, you know the, the joy they bring to our lives. Uh, and I'm sure you also know, especially if your children are a little older, you know how hard it can be and how tough it can be when they're not serving the Lord and, and when they're not really, you know, in line with what you would desire for their life because I know as parents, you know, you want the best for them. And, uh, you know, David here is just going to be experiencing probably the greatest pain that I think anyone can go through uh, because not only is he going to experience someone rebelling, it's treason, it's uh, conspiracy. You know, think about it. Here's King David, you know, and someone's going to take over the kingdom. But here we're going to see it's his, it's his own son that does it. You know, and I don't know if there's a pain that, that can be described as, as bad as this. And we're going to see eventually what ends up happening is his son dies. Now, we went over this last week. And, and, and you know, every child has to make their own decision whether or not they're going to follow the Lord. And so, you know, of course, we can't blame things, you know, 100% on the parents but, you know, it is a lesson for us, nonetheless, how we have such a heavy responsibility to raise our children in the ways of the Lord and, and to be, you know, not just an authoritarian parent, but an authoritative parent, you know, creating those boundaries and spending the time with them and disciplining them in love, knowing that, you know, we are shaping their little lives and they're going to go out and they're going to make choices of whether or not they're going to serve the Lord, the things they're going to do. And so we saw last week that David probably neglected his children. He didn't spend any time with them. And, uh, and we know what time is, right? Time is love. He didn't spend any time with his kids. Absalom, we're going to see, 
is going to suffer from that. And again, I'm not blaming it all on David, but I think for us as parents, it's a, it's a really, really, really heavy lesson, the way that we see he rebels at this point, and, uh, and so we try to find the balance there between these things. It says again there in verse 1 that after this it happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. If you remember, what had happened was David had restored Absalom. You know, Absalom had been gone for years, uh, you know, but, you know, Joab kind of set up this whole thing. A lady came, kind of tricked him. And what ended up happening was David brought him back to Jerusalem, but he didn't see his face for two years. Finally, they reconciled. And what ends up happening is David kind of restores him. But, you know, he doesn't require repentance. And so what ends up happening is this going to create a big problem. Absalom, therefore, begins now to implement his agenda to take over the kingdom. We read here in verse 1 that Absalom provided himself with chariots, it's plural, and horses, and 50 men to run before him. The chariots and 50 men, think about that, running before him. They were bodyguards announcing that Absalom was coming in his chariot uh, certainly would attract attention so that all the people would know, hey, you know, there's, there's Absalom, the, the crown prince of the nation. And, and what he was doing simply, boldly, clearly, publicly was he was exalting himself, right? I mean, now he has the money because now he's been restored. Everything that, you know, belongs to his dad, he kind of has an open door policy with that. And so, we see this right here as a statement of exalting himself. We know later in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, we read about another of David's sons, Adonijah, who also would die, who did the same thing. It says there, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be the king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And so, you know, there's nothing like being hidden now. It's publicly, clearly, boldly, you know, there he is exalting himself. And David's got to be able to see this, right? Absalom has access to chariots and horses and runners because David, who we're going to see, is completely oblivious to everything, has not only forgiven Absalom, but he has restored him. And I mentioned to you guys again last week that we need to forgive, and, and, I, and, I, and it's hard to find that balance, but I think it's something that we need to talk about. You know, if someone says they're sorry, forgive them. You know, the moment they tell you they're, they're sorry, forgive them, because that's good for you and it's good for them, right? But things like trust and restoration, that's different, you guys. Those are different issues. And sometimes the bottom line is people are never repentant, so they're never restored. But if you do choose to restore someone to the position, what I want to encourage you guys to do is this. Make sure that they've proven over time and after temptation that they truly have repented. That was David's mistake, a grave mistake on his part. And he restored him and he wasn't ready for it. And the bottom line is that sometimes it just takes more time and prayer and working with people and bringing them to a place where they're eventually ready for it. Because if they're not ready for it, then something bad might happen. And we're going to see in this case that Absalom literally dies over this. 
You know, for us as spiritual leaders, you know, and we're looking at this whole thing, you know, and you guys, you know, one of the things that we're going to see as we go through life is there are some people, they try to exalt themselves and we have to be careful in all these things. It's not that David was trying to, you know, keep someone from reaching their potential. It's just that David should have protected them and protected the kingdom and keep them from doing the wrong thing would, would then require the judgment of God. You know, that's where leaders, that's where we have a heavy responsibility. David didn't do this for Absalom. Uh, who knows, you know, and think about a chariot. You know, I don't know, that modern day Lamborghini or something. I don't know, a Porsche or some nice car. And, you know, maybe you're there as a parent and you know, because I, I know how, you know, for us as parents, sometimes you just kind of know, you know, what, my kid's not right. They're just, you know, you know, thank God that they're not out there really doing, you know, whatever it is, you know, drugs or, or drinking. But sometimes you just know, you know what, that they're, they're not right. And so anyways, they're driving the Lamborghini and you know they're not right. And, and, and what, what do you do as a parent? Some parents are just like, oh, I'm so proud of them, you know, have a nice job and, and they have a nice place and they have a nice car. And, you know, he looks good in that chariot, right? And, and, and a lot of times we, we got to be careful because um, we have to go deeper with our children. Spend time with them. You know, I know it's hard, but, you know, lasso them. Get over here, man. Let's talk. Where's your heart at? Where are you in your relationship with God? You know, all that, that the, the money stuff, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, you know, we want our kids to be able to provide for our family. You know, I tell my son that I want you to be able to give an honest job and, you know, take care of your family one day. You know, when I try to tell those things to my children, finances, yeah, they have a, a certain element of responsibility there. But the main thing is their relationship with God. And we as parents, I think probably, you know, we, we, when the bottom line comes to it, we're, we can neglect them because we don't realize the heavy responsibility and the influence that we have. You know, David right here, he sees Absalom in the chariot with the 50 men and, and horses, and it should have been a red flag for him. But he doesn't really do anything. And so Absalom just keeps going. We read there in verse 2 again that Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit, they came to the king for a decision that Absalom right there, it says, would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. We're going to see now what ends up happening is Absalom steals the hearts of the people. Number one, he gets real personal with them. I mean, think about it. Absalom rises early. And in the Bible, that means he's really excited. He's really eager about this, right? And he wasn't necessarily at the gates of the city because that's where maybe perhaps the elders would be. But he was by the side of the road towards the gates. And what he would do is he would stand there and, and he'd speak with them. Hey, how you doing? You know, what city are you from? You know, just kind of striking up a conversation. And then they would talk and they would tell him their case. And Absalom would just take the time to listen to them, which I'm sure, you know, blew them away. Wow, look at this guy taking the time to listen to me, asking me about my case, asking me where I'm from, and he is the crown prince of Israel. He stole their hearts, number one, by getting real personal with them. 
Number two, by making himself available to them. Again, look at verse three. Then Absalom would say to them, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. You know, he tells them, You have a good case, but the problem is there's no deputy of the king to listen. To you. Now the word deputy in verse 3 it literally means listener. And so he says, you know what, there's no one to listen to you. There's really nothing you can do about this whole thing. And he kind of gives his dad a, a bad picture, right? He paints a bad picture of his father. He pretty much says, unless, you know, I were made king, man, you really, you really don't have a good case going for you. Nothing can happen. You know, justice won't be served. You know, the other day I was in a ride-along, and uh, in these cases they can be pretty tricky, man. And you need uh, you need you need justice. There was this one gentleman uh, living next to a guy. He'd been living in the house for 30 years, and then a new new kid on the block comes in. He's an Asian man. He was an older man, but he was kind of psycho, man. He was really way out there. And he had a machete, and he's you know shaking it at the police officer, right? And he's shaking it at the neighbor, you know. And uh, it was kind of funny, I, you know, they was planning all these things in the front yard. And there's this big issue there. You know, so this guy had a really good case. But bottom line is, if you don't have a, the authority there, in this case the police officer, then, then in one sense nothing can be done. And Absalom was saying, man, you know, getting personal with them, making himself available to them, what is he doing? He's manipulating them. You know, in looking at this, you guys... You figure that people would be able to see the rebellion of Absalom. You figure they'd be able to see the manipulation of Absalom that was going on here. But the truth is, generally speaking, you know, we, when we hear what we want to hear, and when they're willing to give us what we want, a lot of times we'll let them do that to us and wrap us around their finger. Absalom had the look, he was a great communicator, he was personal, he made himself available to them, and he even appears to be pretty humble. Look at verse 5 again. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would take out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. The NLT translates this verse like this. And when people tried to bow down before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and embraced them. <coughs> so you can, um, you know, you picture, that, you know, typically, you know, the goal, you bow down before the king, you bow down before the crown prince. And as they're there, right about to bow down, what does he do? He grabs them by the hand. No, you don't have to do that. Give me a hug. Right? And he gives them a big hug and he gives them a big kiss. And wow, this guy's amazing. He's personal. He's available. He's humble. And what is happening? He's stealing the hearts of the people. That's what we read right there in verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so what happens in verse 7? It came to pass after 40 years, more than likely that's four years right there, that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. 
Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite of David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. The rebellion. You know, if you're a leader, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, I, I don't know, as a pastor, maybe overseer of a ministry. You know, even today I, I went and I did, a, um, a, there was a conference about uh, human trafficking. And, and really even seeing the way something like this, the way that the, the enemy can steal the hearts of our children. You know, one of the things they said is that if your daughter uh, isn't loved at home, um, then the enemy is going to send someone to love her, somebody else. They're talking about human trafficking and how um, nowadays, you know, we, when we think of human trafficking, usually we'll think of, you know, the Asian cities or the foreign countries. We might even think of Mexico. You know, you go down to Mexico and you'll see some of the human trafficking going on there. Uh, you might even think of them bringing the, the, the girls across the border, and not just, not just girls, also little boys across the border. But you want to know what's happening now. I found out today in just a crazy, crazy way that the gangs are now involved in human trafficking. And they'll take a girl from Riverside to L.A., 30 cases last year that they convicted just there in Riverside. And how do they do it? They find the girls who aren't loved who have no love at home, and they go and they show them their love, so to speak. You know, say, hey, you know, we got some friends for you. We've got some money for you. We've got some stuff for you. And all it takes really is one time. They go, they get gang raped, they get filmed, they get threatened, they get shown the big guns, and their life is, is many times it's over. You know, they were showing one gal, she got uh, kidnapped from here and taken to Mexico. And But she didn't really get hidden, that kidnapped. She just kind of got wooed away. Again, a girl who had no love at home. So she's looking for love in other places. They kind of offer it to her. They say, hey, weekend in Mexico. Let's go. Let's have fun. What ends up happening? She goes there, and she literally, she literally gets trapped. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting. Channel 4 News, they did a, a report on it, and they were talking to her, and she was just sharing her story, sharing the story of how you know she had gone. And you know, for some of these girls and some of these young people, they're already sexually involved. And so their their pitch is, well, you're already you know having sex. Why not get paid for it? You know, five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. Just go for for a weekend. You can come back. And they never come back. Channel Four News did an uh, uh, an interview with this girl, and what ended up happening was. You know, they, they interviewed her, but they didn't rescue her. So guess what happened? She died. And this is happening. You know, what ends up happening is when we don't, you know, show the responsibility that we have as leaders, 
could be parents, it could be a ministry overseer, it could be a pastor. Every once in a while you hear some weird things about how someone took over the church. It's weird, you know. Now, I don't worry about that. We're going to see David has a really good attitude about that. But at the same time, if you see red flags, if you see someone trying to steal your kid, or whatever it might be, you know, different things where God has put you and God's given you responsibilities, you don't ignore them either. I think that's kind of one of the things that we're going to see in going through this lesson right here is Absalom, um, you know, he wasn't called to do this. David should have paid more attention. David has a responsibility as a leader. We have responsibility as parents or, or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, when you see the red flags, you got to just at least go and find out, you know, what's up. Just real simple things like this. These are the responsibilities that we have. You know, Absalom here, man, he's stealing the hearts of the people. Uh, we're going to see through wicked, wicked wisdom. And, and then what ends up happening next is he steals the, the crown of the king. You know, he asks his dad, you know, for whatever reason, who's completely aware of this, uh, Dad, you know, is it okay if I go over to, to Hebron and, you know, take a couple hundred guys with me and we're just going to offer some sacrifices because, you know, before when I was in, in Gershon, I know I told the Lord, if he ever told me, brought me back to Jerusalem, that I would make sacrifices to him. We're going to see he really uses the Lord here, even though he's doing some crazy things. And so notice King David's response in verse 9. It's kind of ironic. He says, go in peace. Now, he's not going in peace, man, but, you know, he's all cool. Go ahead. Now, now, why would he choose Hebron? Well, Absalom was born in Hebron, for one. If you remember, David was there, and that was the capital city of Judah previously. He reigned for seven years and six months there, according to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. So it was a prominent city, and at the same time, who knows, maybe the people of Hebron were uh, upset that they moved the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. It was about 20 miles away. It was a walled city, and at the same time, it would be perfect to organize an attack on Jerusalem. You know, just looking at everything and the way that it's all, you know, coming to pass, what we see right here is there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of wicked wisdom, the wisdom from below. James chapter 3, verse 15 says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Okay, and and when I read that, you guys, you know, here's what what I what I one of the things that I come away with is that I am not that smart, and I know the devil is. I know he is so smart. He is so we would call it a wicked wisdom. It's a wisdom that comes from below, that is so tricky, that is so cunning, that is so crafty that unless I'm really in tune with the Lord, I will never detect it. You know, because you see all these things and the way that everything is just unfolding, you see, wow, you know, these guys, man, they had a plan. While we're sleeping, you know, while we're, whatever it is, you know, we're having a jolly good time or we're watching, you know, maybe a little bit too much television or we're just kicking it, we're not, you know, fasting and praying and, and really seeking God. In comes the enemy by stealth. And he's after you. If he can't get you, he's going to go after your wife. If he can't get your wife, he's going to go after your kids. 
or whatever it is, whatever he wants to do to divide and conquer. And the Lord has just shown me, he said, man, you know, Manny, you really have to have the mind of Christ. You really have to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on. And, and so, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm like, wow, these guys were really organized. They were really smart. We desperately need this relationship with the Lord in order to protect our family and to protect the flock. We really do. You know, Absalom here, he has all these spies that he sends out into different destinations within the nation. And, you know, I don't know how he networked. I don't know if these were the people that he came. He said, hey, where are you from? Okay, cool. He writes their name down. You know, I don't know how, but somehow he's got all these hookups, right? And so they were then able to go out and, you know, blow the trumpet and make formal declarations eventually that Absalom reigns from Jerusalem. And that's what we read there in verse 10. And so what ends up happening, you know, this whole thing goes down. Now it's interesting, verse 11 mentions these 200 men invited from Jerusalem. And it says right there that they didn't really know what was going on. And so you wonder, well, why did he take them? A couple of possibilities. One is, again, Hebron was a walled city. And so maybe if he got some of David's officials in the walled city, really there's nothing they could do. You don't, you don't submit to Absalom, you know, you're trapped. Another possibility is, is this realize, and it's weird when you do a coup. I mean, you know, when you guys think about it, you know, overtaking a country. I mean, all you got to do is have control over a few strategic places and maybe the army and boom, it's done. There's really nothing the people can do. And so, you know, Absalom knew that. These 200 guys go. And they're just thinking, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to go forward under the new leadership of Absalom. You know, looking at this right here, something real interesting in verse 12 again, then it says, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And it says right there that the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. You know, most of the commentaries I read and most of the studies that I've heard on this will tell us that more than likely it was Ahithophel who was the mastermind behind this whole thing. Uh, the reason being, uh, it was probably an act of revenge because of David's actions, which include the murder of Uriah, the taking of Bathsheba as his wife, and the rape of Tamar. You because know, what we find is that Ahithophel, who is this guy Ahithophel? Well, according to Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, Bathsheba, you guys know Bathsheba? She was the daughter of Eliam. And according to Second Samuel 23, 34, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. And so you just kind of connect the dots, real simple. Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. And David killed his granddaughter's husband, a great man by the name of Uriah, and then he took his granddaughter, he, he took her to be his wife. And so, you know, Ahithophel, undoubtedly, he fed this rebellion, he led this rebellion. Absalom was the man, you know, because you know how it is when you have grandkids, right? I heard that, is it true, grandchildren are better than children? No, I'm just joking, I want to say that. Now, I remember one man, he told me how much he loved his grandchildren, and he said, 
You know, if people mess with your children, you just kill them. But if they mess with your grandchildren, you torture them before you kill them. You know, <laughs> and you guys know I, you know, was just making a point. You know how much he loved his grandchildren, and so here's Ahithophel, and David does this to his granddaughter. Undoubtedly, this is part of the reason for the rebellion. And the thing is, is that this guy Ahithophel, he was he was brilliant. When it comes to, to wisdom, if you go over to Second Samuel chapter 16, look at, at verse 23. It says, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. And so, you know, he's behind all this. Um, we know, of course, Absalom wants to take revenge for the rape of his full sister Tamar by his half-brother Amnon. And David never did anything about it, right? And so it's just crazy looking at all the reasons that this happens. You know, how you know people go ahead and sin and, and, they, and they think that, you know, it's, it's no big deal. You know, one thing I really want to just, uh, I want to encourage you guys to do is to really fear God. Really fear the Lord, man. You know, because it's one thing when we when we stumble, you know, and I think we all do. I think, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. It just kind of came out or, or, or whatever, you know, you, you slip here and there. But if you're here today and you are a hard-hearted person who goes into sin, defiantly and presumptuously and and you're no you don't fear god you know well first of all you might not really know god well you're like well i come to calvary chapel and i serve in the ministry that doesn't mean you're saved i mean i don't want to make anyone who's a real christian doubt their salvation because God is so good and gracious, but I don't want to make one person who isn't a Christian have a false assurance. And one of the things that I know, and I just know this for a fact, is that when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And that Holy Spirit, He convicts you of sin. And you can't just you know, go ahead and do it defiantly. You're not going to have any assurance. You know, we stumble, we make our mistakes, you know, and things like that. But, you know, when we go ahead, and, and if you are a Christian, okay, you still need to fear God because, you know, you're more accountable. And let me tell you something. The more you know, even the more accountable you are, the more Bible studies you listen to, the more, you know, whatever it is, DVDs that you watch and, you know, you know scriptures that you memorize and read, you know, cool, I'm glad that you're doing it, but you're even more accountable, and so if you continue to sin, let me tell you something. God will deal with you. Things like this. David knew better. What does he do? He falls into sexual sin with Bathsheba. And then what does he do? He kills her husband, a good man, Uriah. And now what ends up happening? It's all coming back to bite him. Even though God had forgiven him of his sin, he still had to suffer the consequences of it. And so... You know, here comes Ahithophel, and, you know, all these people now are, are turning against him. Part of it's David's fault. And that's why we have to make sure we walk in obedience, you guys. You know, Ahithophel at one time was a good friend of David. 
And so here, again, just a lot of lessons. You know, but it's hard. Imagine that. Your kid's turning against you, and now one of your best friends is turning against you. Ahithophel is a picture of Judas in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we read in Psalm 55, verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. I mean, we used to hang out, we used to fellowship together, man, and now you're doing this. You're betraying me. That's what David is saying. And what we find is Ahithophel is a picture of Judas, and both of them would eventually kill themselves. And so anyways, you know, the rebellion of Absalom, it grows. And so after Absalom rebels, then David runs. Look at verse 13. It says, Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And so David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now you might wonder, why, why are you running, David? You're, dude, you're bad, man. You're, you're the same guy who slew Goliath, right? Why are you running? Well, he does it for a couple of reasons. Number one, for the protection of the people in the city. That's what he says right there. He doesn't want to stay there where maybe Absalom can surround them or Absalom can attack the people and thereby put them in harm's way. And that, that's a good reason. So he splits. Another reason he, he runs, and here's the interesting thing, and this is where it can get tough, is because he doesn't know, he's not 100% sure that this rebellion is a bad thing. You know, he might be thinking that this is the Lord doing this, that this is the Lord disciplining him. Uh, if you remember, watch, go back to chapter 12. Remember what Nathan had told him in Second Samuel chapter 12 and in verse 10, when he's pronouncing the sentence as a result of his sin, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And so David leaves Jerusalem, one, to protect the people, two, and we're going to see this as the whole thing unfolds, is because he's thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe this is the Lord. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out exactly what ends up happening here. And so as he leaves, we read in verse 15, And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. And then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites and the Gittites, six hundred men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. And so David leaves the palace. He leaves Jerusalem. 
And he does some things wrong, and he does some things right. Uh, one of the things he does wrong is he leaves ten concubines there to take care of the house. Um, they would later be violated and raped by Absalom. You know, and, and you wonder, in looking at that, so David, again, what are you thinking? You want to keep it clean, or, or what? You know, I mean, is the house more important than the home? I mean. What's going on? Are you putting property before people? These ladies were in your care. And, and yet at the same time, you got to admit, you would have never thought that Absalom would have been so wicked. huh? I mean, how could you would never think that he would take these ten women up on the roof and sleep with them before all of Israel? But you know what, you guys? We are, we are, we are fighting an enemy who doesn't have a sliver, neither that or an ounce of compassion. Not an ounce. And so we have to make sure that we are really, you know, doing our job in protecting the people that God has entrusted to us. You know, because he won't stop until you're dead. He won't stop until they are in hell. And so he underestimates Absalom right here. The ten concubines end up staying, and it seems like you know everyone else goes with him. And you know we're going to see as we go through now that a lot of people end up staying loyal to the king, including these six hundred men right here who had followed him from Gath. Now, more than likely, these are guys that he picked up when he was in the land of the Philistines. And so, you know, we read in verse nineteen about one individual. It says, "And the king said to Ittai." The Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. And so David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. Now we don't know a lot about this guy Ittai at this point anyways. Um, it's possible that David may have known him from the land of the Philistines and he had just been exiled. Now he is with David. He got there, it says right there, a day before. And uh, and so David's like, man, you just got here. You know, you don't have to hang out with me. I don't even know where I'm going. Just go ahead and stay here. And he says in verse 19, with the king. Just stay there, no problem. You don't have to go with me. But but I love the commitment of this guy right here, Ittai. Again, notice what he says uh, here. You know, and when you look at this verse 21, it's a beautiful expression of loyalty. As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Does that remind you guys of anything? Probably does, huh? Ruth. Remember that whole story with Ruth and Naomi and 
You know, Naomi's husband had died, her sons had died. She's going back to the land from Moab. And she says, uh, you guys, you girls, stay here. You know, live your own life. You still got your whole life ahead of you. You don't have to hang out with me. But what does Ruth say? It says there in Ruth 1, 16 and 17, she said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What are we now, what are we, what are we now discovering? We're discovering that some, bottom line is, they're, they're, not, they're not loyal, and some are just amazing Amazing friends. You know, and probably these guys hooked up back in the Philistines, and, you know, this guy's just in love with David. And it's just, it shows a character, and not necessarily even of David or Naomi, it shows more of the character of Ruth and, and in this guy Ittai. You see? Because it's a beautiful thing, and it's a lost art nowadays when you have a loyal friend. Somebody's going to stick with you through the adversities and the tough times. We're going to see a great lesson here. These two are manifestations or demonstrations of Proverbs 17.17 where it says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You guys, it's during the difficult times when you find out who your true friends really are. Not in times of prosperity, but in times of adversity. That's when you find out who your real friends are. You know, and you know, here we see something, David's going through this, and yes, yeah, some of it's his sin. So someone falls into misfortune, or they fall into sin. And some of their so-called friends, they rejoice, believe it or not. They would rather have them stay away and go away. And they say, well, we're praying for you, yeah, but you would never call them. What kind of friend is that? It almost makes you want to go through something like this so that you can find out who your true friends really are. Spiritual kin who will stick with you through thick and thin. You're not going to know who they really are unless you go through the adversity. Unless you go through the failures. Then you're going to find out who your real friends are. David here makes a few discoveries. Look next at verse 23. It says, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brick Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And there was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. And then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I will have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. So Absalom rebels. He steals the heart of the people, then he steals the crown of the king. And so David runs. But we're going to see, you know, that he's going to find out who his real friends are. 
You know, the, the bodyguard, 600 men, they stay with him. And Ittai, you know, commits to stay with him and the soldiers that he leads. And, and now we see the priests come and they say, hey, David, we're with you, willing to follow him as he fled. And even bringing the Ark of the Covenant with them. But what does David do? I love the fact that David told them, you know what, go back to Jerusalem, take the Ark back into the city. And that's kind of cool for a number of reasons. One is David didn't see the Ark as a good luck charm as Eli and others had done in the past. Neither did he see it as the key to obtaining the favor of the Lord. You know, he, he saw deeper than that, not in the icons. No, it was in, in his heart. He said, you know what, right here, he said, I'm still in God's hands. And the kingdom is in God's hands. And if God wants me back, then he'll bring me back. If he doesn't, if things don't go out the way that I would have liked it, then that's okay, he says, because God knows what's best. And so during this difficult situation, what is David you know, demonstrating now? What we find is David is demonstrating a trust in God. You know, and, and what we find in David's life is this. And you guys remember, right? David trusted God to make him king. And so David trusted God to keep him king if he wanted to. And if not, it was okay. And that's the way we have to serve the Lord. And that can manifest itself in so many different ways, you know. And there it is. And you want this so bad. And it could be, you know, a building. It could be a job. It could be healing, whatever it is. And you're like, Lord, I would love, you know, for you to do this. But either way, Lord, I know you know what's best. I think one of my favorite illustrations of this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember? When they didn't bow before the image. And so the king said, well, we're going to throw you into the fire. And I'll give you one more chance. You know, bow down right here. And they said, sorry, it's not going to happen, right? And so what does the king do? He heats up the fire seven times hotter. So hot that the guys who heated it up, they got toasted, right? And what ends up happening? Before the guys go in, they say, listen, king. God is able to deliver us from this fire, from that fiery furnace. That's what they say. But if he doesn't, it doesn't change who he is. And I think that's what David is saying right here. He's saying, you know, if the Lord wants to bring me back and and keep me here, he can do it and I'm going to let him do it. But if he doesn't, it's okay. Because the Lord, he knows, he knows what's best. David was open to the fact that this might actually be the Lord. He wasn't really sure. And sometimes we're not really sure. I thought it was kind of interesting how in verse 19 he refers to Absalom as the king. And so what ends up happening? He sends the priests back. In verse 27 it says, The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? So he was not only a priest, but he was also a prophet. He says, return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimehaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. And see, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. You know, David sends them back, I, I think, um, to pray for him. 
to be a prophet, to be a seer, and also to kind of like, you know, investigate, kind of be a spy. What we find right here is David is both praying and David is planning. He sends them back so that they would be his informants while he's out in the wilderness. You know, and that's what we have to do as followers of God, you guys. We've got to pray knowing God's sovereignty, and we have to obey knowing our own responsibility. I think it was D.L. Moody who said, pray as if it all depended upon God, because it does, and work as if it all depended upon you. So David says, go back, take the ark back. You're a prophet. You can see what's going on. And we'll just keep this whole thing in prayer. And at the same time, tell you what, let me know what's going on, right? And so we see the same thing in verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. And then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, notice he prays, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountains where he, notice, worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and, and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaz and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. It's cool. David prays, Lord, he finds out that they hit the thousand one of the counselors. Lord, you know, you know, defeat his council, turn it around. And what ends up happening? Boom, this guy Hushai he shows up. He's not only, you know, He's an answer to prayer, right? He's an answer to prayer. It's one thing when you get your prayers answered. It's kind of another thing when you almost become an answer to your prayers, man. And that's, you guys, a good balance in life. I really pray that we would learn these basic lessons in life. Pray, pray, pray. Fast. Seek the Lord. Get on your face. Cry to God. Seek Him in His Word. Seek godly counsel. Pray, knowing that God is sovereign. But man, whatever you do, don't then just kick back. You go, and we got to do what we got to do as, as, as Christians, as parents, as, as leaders, as workers, as missionaries in the world that we live in. Then we work harder than, than, than anyone else. See, and that was what David was doing. He was praying, right? He's praying, Lord, please, please do this. And then what is he doing? He's planning, huh? He's planning. He's saying, okay, you guys are over there. You guys are over there. And, and that's what we have to do as well. I think it's very important for us to understand. Like I always tell you guys, Proverbs 21:31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, right? That's our part. But deliverance is of the Lord. That's God's part. 
And so what we find in the end, it's cool, the way the Lord answered his prayer. How did the Lord answer his prayer? He gave him a friend. You guys like that in verse 37? So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city. It's been said that a friend is never known until a man has a need. One person said a friend is one who comes in when the whole world goes out. And that's what David was to discover now. You know, David was running and at the same time realizing who his true friends are. And so, you know, let's just say you're going through a hard time, you know, and, and so my encouragement to you is, you know, to, to weep, to pray, to seek the Lord, to be encouraged. As a matter of fact, we don't have time to go there right now, but read Psalm chapter 3. That was a psalm that David wrote during this whole thing. It was a beautiful psalm expressing his trust in the Lord, man, just totally trusting God, right? And so you're going through your difficulties, you find out who your friends are, but let's turn that around. Is there anybody you know who's going through difficulties? Anybody you know who's going through through hard times? You know, if you say you're a friend, reach out to them. You be a friend to them as well. That's what we see when we, when we go through life. God is so personal. He's so awesome. You know, I was praying about going to Cambodia. Lord, should I go this year? And of course I want to go. I want to go. You want to go, but you're not sure. And finally, you know, just really waiting and seeking the Lord, I really felt like he, he spoke to me when, one night when I was praying just a couple of nights ago, and it was just so cool. Now, I've got to tell you guys this story, and I know we're going a little overtime, but you guys are fine, man. we got we got like 10 more minutes, I think. Um, and then afterwards, we'll all go to In-N-Out. But, um, you know, one year I wasn't sure whether or not to go to Cambodia, and then the Lord spoke to me through Pastor Chuck. Why don't you go to Cambodia and give him shoes? Now, this year he didn't do that. The Lord did spoke, speak to me, though. He laid it on my heart. I want you to go. And he made it really clear. That was, that was yesterday. Okay? Today, you're never going to guess what happened. This new study by Pastor Chuck, because I'm listening to him through the Bible. And guess what he said? Same thing, man. You've got to go to Cambodia. It was a different study. But it's the only country he mentioned. You see, you see how personal God is? It's amazing to me. And, you know, when I think of this whole thing right here, I think of a friend. Think of a friend. And I, and I can think of, I'm blessed with so many friends. But um, he's our greatest friend, huh? The Lord is our friend, you guys. Uh, the Bible says that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, huh? And that's who Jesus is. You know, um, when we look at this whole thing right here, in one sense... You know, David is like Jesus now. Not exactly the same, but, you know, these guys, they didn't really know what was happening. David's kind of going in this, this way over here. I guess you could say in one sense hidden from Jerusalem. But he had people that were committed to him. The day would come when David would come back. huh? And all those people that proved themselves, what are they going to do? They're going to surround him. That's what we are today. Today, you guys... We are committed to Jesus Christ. And we may not see him ruling and reigning right now, but I tell you what, one day, and soon and very soon, he's coming back. He's my friend, and I want to be his friend as well. 
See, and that's why we're so busy about the work of the kingdom of God. One last thing. I'm sure you guys heard the true story of Jackie Robinson, who was the first black uh, male to play Major League Baseball. I guess he broke the, the color barrier. But as he did, he was facing jeering crowds in every stadium. People, you know, saying things to him, giving him a difficult time. And so while playing one day in his home stadium in Brooklyn, he committed an error. And so as a result of that, the fans began to ridicule him. And there he was. He stood at second base, humiliated, while the fans jeered him. And it was at that very difficult time in his career that shortstop Pee Wee Reese, you guys probably know about this, he came over and he stood next to him and he put his arm around him and he faced the crowd. And the fans grew quiet. Robinson later said that that arm around his shoulder saved his career. See? And in one sense, you and I are like Jackie Robinson. And we're in this place and and we're not going to make it. But guess who shows up? Jesus Christ. He comes and he puts his arm around us. And that, it doesn't just save our career, it saves our soul. I thank God for Jesus. He's so good. He's so good. Let's live our lives for him. Okay? Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are, for what you've done, God. And life is this crazy battle, Lord, and the enemy is so cunning and just, Lord, crafty. And there's that wicked wisdom that is demonic and earthly and sensual. And Lord, myself, of all people, I know that unless you step in, Lord, unless you give me a clue, unless you, Lord, give me the wisdom that comes from above, Lord, I'm not going to make it, Lord. And so I just thank you for your word. I thank you for being so personal to us and that you would speak to us. I thank you, Lord, for dying for us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that every person here would be encouraged and they'd be strengthened in a very, very personal relationship with you. And Lord, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, who's not really a Christian, maybe they think they are, but but they're not, Lord, show them. Show them what's really going on and help us all to just humble ourselves and to really make you the Lord and the Savior of our life. We do love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.